In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about how to build more successful integrations. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 446. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. How are you doing this week, Rob? Doing pretty good, man. Just uh, doing a lot of work on Tiny Seed. It's been fun to start to have more and more exposure to more and more startups. You know, I've always had, we've had a lot of exposure to, to you know, a lot of different founders and startups over the years through all the, the stuff that we do with MicroConf and book, blog, podcast, et cetera. And, and then I felt like I kind of leveled up when I started angel investing and got really in-depth views, ongoing, longitudinal, you know, over more companies and, and tiny seed feels like another leveling up for me. It's just seeing a lot of, lot of different data, a lot of different applications and seeing what's working and what's not and tactics, strategies, approaches, even what, what is working with the founders who are successful and not. And so that's, that's been kind of a, a fun thing to continue to dig into. That's cool. How about you? Well, on my end, I'm in the midst of uh, rolling out some blue tick updates. And the main focus here is to provide uh, kind of a, I don't want to say platform, but more of a uh, mechanism for me to do more in the future in terms of displaying emails inside of the application. So right now I can send emails out and you can see those emails, but you can't see the replies of, to those emails in there or see the the history there. And some of these updates are going to allow people to do that. And it'll also give people the capability to inject blue tick into existing conversations, which is not something that it's capable of right now. I actually had a, answered somebody's question through Twitter the other day. They were asking, oh, can it do that? And I was like, not yet, but like that's on the roadmap and it's coming, not soon, but like it's coming in the future. So this will give me a much, put me in a much better position to be able to do that. And then there's also all these various things with the Google authentication stuff that's in there. I mean, honestly, like, frankly, I'm kind of worried about how that's going to turn out because like, it's a completely opaque process and I have no idea what the end result is going to be. So still kind of, I won't say sweating it out, but like what is going to be the end result of this? So. Yep. That's, uh, sorry. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That sucks. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Good luck is probably. I guess. I mean, there's nothing really to say. It's just waiting for them to go in and put like, I don't know what their checklist looks like. I don't know what they do or anything. Like it's a huge, it's a huge hole. Like I have no visibility here and it sucks and there's nothing I can do either, which is the worst part. So it's just, they're going to either approve it or reject it or, and they're going to move along with whatever their timeline is, which they've been fairly vague about until just very recently where they're like, Oh yeah, you only have a few days left and I'm still waiting to hear from them. So if anyone here works at Google and is involved in that process, please email me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my email, Mike. So we, uh, due to some recent fixes that I mentioned last episode, fixes to our WordPress theme, our comments are now appearing to end users. And there were a couple that I wanted to read through. Episode 436, How to Respond to Customer Suggestions. Steve says, great podcast. I've made every mistake mentioned in here plus a few more. We have one additional solution while working with customer requests. I've found that if a customer wants a specific feature and it makes sense to put it in the product, though they want it now and you see it down the road, charge them to put it in now. We charge it as an expedited feature release. It has helped us grow SkillsDB Pro, which is his product, to an enterprise level offering while getting paid along the way. 
one more bootstrapping thought. So I think that's that's a good one. I, it's not something that I've tended to do with SaaS apps, but back when I had these, like the more one-time downloadable stuff, we definitely did it on a number of my products, especially the ones that were smaller where like a few thousand dollars in kind of expedited feature release actually moved the needle on the product versus, you know, if you're doing, you know, a million or more, whereas if you, you know, if you have a seven figure SaaS app, then trying to charge a few grand to expedite a feature, it almost, it's almost not worth the hassle is, is how I found it. But I thought that was a kind of a cool suggestion that some folks might be able to take advantage of. Awesome. Anything else? Yeah, we have a, a comment on episode 437 uh, where we talked about MicroConf Europe. And I think this was back when we were still trying to figure out where it was going to be. Or maybe we even said Croatia, but Rob said, not me, different Rob says, come to Barcelona. And what do we say to that, Mike? Do you live in Barcelona? <laughs> no, well, that's the first thing because everybody wants us to come to their city. But we have. We came to Barcelona twice. Yep. And we tend to go to cities two years in a row. And then we move on to keep things varied. So episode 440, how to build case studies that don't suck. Sarah said, great episode as always. You mentioned a book called The Hero's Journey. There seems to be a few around with that name. Can you give any additional details? So I've got the right one. I don't know that I mentioned a book, but I did mention Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. I've never read a book about it. I tend to go to Google and there's these amazing diagrams and and in-depth articles. I mean, the first result on Google is like amazing and I'll give you the whole overview. So then maybe Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero's Journey. You can totally Google for that. But frankly, just getting the idea of you know what a hero's journey is like is pretty easy to do from the Googs. And last comment for the day, episode 441, where we answered some listener questions. And then in our after show, we talked about the first, you know, MicroConf Dungeons and Dragons game and how Patrick McKenzie, uh, his character died early on and he became the final enemy. He's, he was the boss, right? He was voicing the boss. And Christoph Engelhart chimed in and he said, my biggest question is what kind of final enemy in a Dungeons and Dragons game constantly mutters charge more? Okay, I'll see myself out. Sorry that that was worthy of mention. One of the few funny lines, I'm sure, that will happen in today's episode. One of the very, very few, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there'll be any others. I know. That was it. That was our one and done. So today we're talking about successful integrations. You want to dig us in? Sure. So I kind of based this outline loosely on some of the challenges that I've encountered integrating with other apps, taking Bluetick and just whether it's integrating with IMAP servers or going into Zapier or other third-party applications or even just using certain libraries like code libraries. So some of this is kind of retrospective. Like if I were to go back and do it again, how would I approach it? Because there's certainly things that I look at now and I would have done very, very differently. And then there's other things where I don't know how much I would have changed or how much it would have changed what ended up, what the end result of that was. So like, I think that there's the things that I've kind of learned along the way of doing it and that are generally applicable to most people if they're going to look to do integrations. And I'm sure you have a ton of experience here in terms of taking Drip and integrating it with, I think it was like 30 or 35 different other applications and incorporating them into Drip throughout, you know, it's, uh, I'll say, rise to fame. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was that. There was Hittail. I did, I don't know, it wasn't half a dozen, but it was approaching that. .NET Invoice did a few. Like, I've I've had multiple apps, many apps, I would say, that that we've done integrations, some successful, some not, some technically successful, but, you know, monetarily, they were revenue-wise, they weren't that great. And then others that were pretty simple and easy to build that wound up, you know, having a big impact on revenue. So, yeah, a lot of learnings and, you know, some, some do's and don'ts along the way. 
So before we dive in, like what I kind of want to do is provide sort of a definition for this so that we're working from the same same page here. And I've, I've loosely defined an integration as it's a part of a a part of your business where there's something that's handled internally and it is reliant upon a third party. And essentially, it's outside of your direct control. And there's varying degrees of visibility and influence that you have over whatever the processing is or procedures or how it works. And some examples of those are things like code libraries or third party APIs. So if you're like bare metrics, for example, is heavily reliant upon Stripe's APIs. And if those Stripe APIs went away, the business kind of goes away. And I I think a lot of discussions were had in years past about integrating with Twitter because they decided kind of on a whim to go about and either change the process of who is authorized to interact with their APIs or who has them available or even what you can do with them. And, you know, obviously, like all these large companies like Google and Facebook, Twitter, they all have varying things that, that they want to do in the future. And those may directly conflict with you as an entrepreneur. So these are areas of risk. And those are the types of things that you want to keep in mind when you are trying to integrate with somebody or something outside of your company. And that can be software integrations. It could be business processes. It could even be like a joint venture that you're doing with somebody. But I think the focus today is going to be more on the technical side of things, but also taking into account the inter-business relationships as well, because you have to know that the person that you're working with or the business entity on the other side isn't going to totally screw you. And if they do or if they could, what ways might those be? And it's really just providing some visibility to those areas of risk. Right. And, you know, building your app on someone else's platform where if they turned off the knob, you would lose 50 to 70%, 50 to 80% of your revenue overnight. That's one thing. And that's platform risk. And you can de-risk it by going to multiple platforms. Sometimes you don't need to de-risk it. It does impact like sales multiples. Like if you were to try to sell a SaaS app that is entirely reliant on a platform and you don't have kind of an official contract, um, I know that that's, it's a risk, right? So acquirers look at it and factor it in. We're not going to dive into all that today. I mean, it really is more about, this is more about building individual integrations. You think about a drip that has all these, you know, incoming stuff from Stripe and from Shopify and from Eventbrite and blah, blah, blah. And any one of those going away would have been a bummer because people, you know, watched it and used it, but it would not have been business ending. And that's really more of the integrations we're talking about today. And we are talking about both the process, the dev side of building it, you know, the, the business development side of of how can you leverage that to get more more customers and leads and even you know i think we'll touch on like deployment support and that kind of stuff so as you said like the that best case scenario is really if something goes away maybe you've lost some time or money and that's about it but the worst case is everything that you've built is effectively gone and that kind of leads towards like building on somebody else's platform and you just have to evaluate that as a risk so we're going to start through this list and the first one is what level of effort is it going to take to build something and i'll i'll preface this by saying that i think that in most cases your your estimates to build and integration are going to be too low by a lot. And that will change over time as you get more familiar with building integrations and you create more infrastructure in your own application in order to build those things. But what I've found is that there's a few different places where 
I thought things were going to be in a certain way, and it turns out that they weren't. So, for example, documentation is an area where when you're trying to build a third-party integration or integrate into something else, I found documentation tends to be lacking. Even if the documentation is there and it seems to be extensive, what I've found is that a lot of times that documentation is inaccurate, and it's because companies don't keep their their documentation up to date. There's places where it will say one thing and it is absolutely not true, or it documents it in a certain way and says, hey, this is how it works. And when you go to start implementing it, turns out it doesn't actually work that way. And these things sound like they shouldn't be that big of a deal, but in some cases they really are. If you've designed everything in a certain way, those things really throw a wrench into your plans. Yeah, there's an interesting X factor that gets thrown into or, or a variable that is outside of your control that gets thrown in when you're dealing with someone else's API. And it could be just bugginess. It could be docs that are out of date. There's a, there's a bunch of different things. And it's different when you're just building your own app. You know there are going to be things you can't control in terms of, oh, I ran into this problem, I couldn't solve it quick enough, or I, I, there was a bug I couldn't find for two hours or whatever. But external APIs can be one of the most frustrating things to develop against. And so I think integration estimates, especially here's the thing, we, we got to the point with Drip, since we built so many of them, we basically almost by looking at documentation and, and kind of whether we knew the founders or not, and whether it was a big company or a small company, we could kind of gauge like, oh, this, this is a Fortune 500 integration and they're using SOAP, you know, and this is going to take a week to build versus, oh, it's a REST API written by some Ruby developers that we know we can probably literally build what we need in four hours. I mean, there were integrations we would get done in half a day. And it's because we had a whole repeatable system and, and a bunch of code on our side to help do that copy-paste and blah, 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 polymorphism and that kind of stuff. But we would kind of ballpark engage, yeah, I think this one's going to be a lot worse. It's like all, all APIs you know, are certainly not created equal. Another thing I've run into is that there's time that you're going to have to do some sort of black box testing to figure out how things really work, especially when you're going against external resources or external APIs that are providing data for you. Interesting thing I ran into was there was a code library I was using that says, oh, if you you know pull this information back, you get a list of strings over here and you get a list of integers over there and they represent the same thing. And early on, I've, I was trying to work with those and pull the data back. And one of them took five seconds and the other one took 60. But it's it's supposed to be identical data. And the numbers, the, the integers should have been a lot faster and they weren't. And of course, so I ended up using the other, the, the just using the strings. That worked fine. And then recently I've kind of gone back and I've done been doing some more performance testing on that section of things and came back and said, why is this taking so long? It shouldn't take that long. And I found some access to like some additional logging capabilities and I printed it out. And it turns out they're actually returning not just those numbers, but also a set of dates. I was like, wait a second, why is it requesting dates? It's not even actually requesting the, what the information I asked for. It's requesting this other thing and then just interpreting it and throwing the, those integers in there. So it, it actually doesn't even work. Like, wow, that's just painfully wrong. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it works, but only because of some other thing that happens to be going on. It's issuing the wrong command to the server. But those are the types of things that you're going to run into. And you won't, since you don't have the visibility into those things, or you can't troubleshoot somebody else's code or somebody else's server, it makes it difficult to find those things. And it just takes longer. 
So you'll have to do like timing, performance, benchmarks, and you know, see how much memory allocation needs to be done for different things. And you may not be able to do everything all in one shot. So those are the types of things that just it just takes longer. It makes the process of implementing, especially the early early integrations you do, it just makes it take that much longer. Yeah, and here's something I'll say on how to kind of streamline this. If you're only going to build a few, then just do what you're going to do and, and go straight forward. If you think you're going to be building a lot of integrations, and there are reasons to do this, right? A, it makes your product more sticky because you can get data from more places and, and therefore users have get more value out of it. B, it makes your users, customers' lives easier. And C, it can be a co-promotion opportunity, right? Those off the top of my head, those are kind of the top three reasons to do it. If you're going to build a bunch of them, then you're going to want to standardize on the code side and, like I said, develop something where it's it's easy to just pop them in and, and you don't have to build custom UI for each one. Um, I mean, again, you look at at the drip UI and we just pop an item in a dropdown list, right, to add the next trigger or action that's triggering something in drip or sending out you know, an action, something that goes out of drip. The other thing to think about is, or the way we were doing it was, I believe, if I recall, we had kind of three levels. We had a V1, V2, and V3 of any integration that we did, almost without fail, where we would build a very simple integration first, and that was our V1. And that would typically take less than a day to build. And sometimes it only had one or two triggers, one or two actions, something like that. And it was easy to build. We got to speed with their API. We'd push it live. We'd, we'd promote it. We'd see who used it. We'd see the requests. And the, the best case scenario is that we got a bunch of people saying, oh, this is cool, except for it doesn't do this for me. And the reason we did that is it's almost like customer development, right? Where we were like iterating on the feature, almost like it was its own product. Because Drip had, you know, off the top of my head, I'm going to say 20 different triggers and, and, you know, Stripe might have 20 or 30 different actions. Well, there's no reason to build all those 50, essentially 50 endpoints, right? 20 in and 30 out. Again, don't quote me on those exact numbers, but you get the idea what I'm saying. There's a lot. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of code to do. If you build two in, two out, pretty simple, you throw it live. And then as people ask for stuff, you know, you can add another one in almost minutes. I mean, you have to write unit tests and stuff, but it, it's, it's very trivial to add. And if you get enough people asking about it, well, you take it to that next level where it's like a tighter integration, then you, you can add OAuth later. Like at first you can paste in API keys, which are a little janky, but then OAuth becomes the V2 and you just build tighter and invest more in that, the more people who use it. And that's, that was how we did it. And it seemed to work out pretty well in general. And having, you know, having the ability to watch the actual user behavior on your integrations before investing weeks of time is, is hugely valuable, you know, because it can save you a lot of time. Because there were integrations that we built that V1 and 20 people used it, you know, out of thousands of customers. And we just, we never added, we never did OAuth and we never added that extra week or two of, of development on it because it wasn't, you know, there was no business case to do so. And what I like about the um, the strategy you just kind of outlined, the doing the V1 and then V2 and V3, is it allows you to come back and start very, very simple. And then as you start to see the problems, like the technical problems with it, but also the features and functionality they're missing that customers are asking for, it allows you to fill them in afterwards. And you don't have to worry about as much about going back and rewriting some of those things that you've already built in order to satisfy what the customers need, because you didn't build very much to begin with. You did it really more or less to help pull that information out of the customers and find out what it is that they wanted and then take that forward. That's actually a, a mistake that I probably made early on with integrating with Zapier is that I, I put too 
too many things in there, but it was partly because customers were asking me to do a lot. So I don't, I don't know what the answer, you know, how I would change that, but I think that I would probably spend a little bit more <laughs> time on going back and verifying with Zapier directly, like how should this be, have been done? Yeah, it's easy to overbuild, you know, and you get in there and you think I need every, they need to be able to do everything that they can do through the Bluetooth UI or everything that API offers. They need to be able to do that in Zapier. And I would say that's not, that's not true for a V1. You know, you're, you may miss something, but take your best guess, 80, 20 it. Like what are the, what are the two out of 10 things that you think, or you know, people are using or your gut feel of what you think they'll use, which sometimes you just don't have the data and then pop it in. And then when they're like, oh, I also want to do X, Y, Z. Well, you know, then you put that in your queue and you, you build it out as soon as you can. So yeah, in, integrations are, they're, it's, they're a curious thing because I remember uh, with Hittail, we used to get this with Drip too, but it was like, do you integrate or can you, do you integrate with, I'm trying to think of an example, with Shopify? And it's like, what do you mean by that? Like, what does an integration mean in your head? You know, it's like, does that mean that we're taking data in from them or that we're, and we're triggering things? Does that mean you want us to pull data and, and display it as a report? Does that mean you want us to push things into your Shopify store? Same with Stripe. You know, it's like, do you integrate with Stripe? It's like, yeah, we do. But what, what do you need it to do? You know, and it was often digging in questions and then they would have a use case typically. It's like, well, I want, once I have someone purchase, I want to be able to mark them as a customer in Drip, right? And it's like, well, yes, of course. Yeah, we do that. Or once an invoice is created, you know, on the second Tuesday of every month, I want this and that to happen. It's like, oh, we don't handle that use case, but we can build that. You know, it's like digging in because saying integrating with Basecamp or Rise or, you know, or with Slack, like, that can mean a whole slew of things, right? Integrating with Slack can literally be, oh, I just dump a message in there when someone says something, you know? It's like, that's, it's an integration, but it, it may not be what everyone has in mind, you know? So you, you often want to dig in if people are asking for these things and find out really what is your exact use case and then just build those one at a time, but build it in a framework such that it's easy to, you know, to add other uh, functions. Yeah, the question that I've kind of usually responded to for those types of requests is, what is it that you're trying to do? Because that'll give you, usually that'll kind of entice people enough to give you the information that you need to either extrapolate it or what you need to build or what sorts of things they're trying to do and whether it's even remotely possible. And if, if it is, then you can dig in a little bit more with like that technical stuff. But usually at a high level, it gives you enough information to say, yes, this conversation is even worth pursuing or it isn't. Right. Next step we're going to dig into is like the actual API integration itself, whether you're calling an external API or they're trying to call back to yours from an external application. And, and what I found is that because there are so many different ways to design an API, it's probably not going to be likely that your API is going to be able to be used directly by the other application. So this applies whether it's having to respond to webhooks uh, or accepting them or tracking them or just make external function calls. All of those things, like if you have an external application that's calling into yours, if they already have a standard way of doing it, you may need to change how your product works. And if you already built an API, it may not be the easiest thing in the world to change your API, especially if you have other customers interacting with it or your application depends on it. So Bluetick, for example, is a, a single page application and it's got an API specifically for the app itself. It's also got a, a public API. And then I have additional endpoints that I've created. And this is kind of one of the 
the I'll say hacks that I've learned is that creating your own dedicated endpoints for other apps could be in your best interest to do. It sucks to have to maintain them in addition to the other code that you have, but it may be the best way to go about providing a mechanism for them to talk to your app without having to rewrite all the different things in your app. Because even if you just have two of them that need to call into your application, they may be doing things differently between each other, and then your application may be doing something else as well which makes it hard. You can't standardize on one thing that's different for three different people. So a dedicated endpoint for each of them is a good way around that. I won't say the best way, but it is a way that is workable. Yeah. Another thing to think about is rate limiting. I mean, I think I've talked a little bit about how like segment, well, there were a few people, segment was the most notorious for it a couple of years ago, but they would accidentally DDoS us and we would, you know, someone would activate something and it would just hammer your API. And we had we had rate limiting in place, right? We had a Ruby gem that basically sent back the, I believe, is it the 304 response, 403? There's some, there, there's some response where you encode that it's like, you've been rate limited, you can send this much per, you know, per hour and wait this long before you can send your next batch and they just weren't honoring that. And there were several that, that weren't honoring because you have to code to, you know, work around those. I know that Zapier has rate limits and we coded early on to, to help with those. So, it's one of those things that in the early days doesn't matter. And as you scale, it matters a lot because it'll either take your API down, it could take your app down, uh, your database down, you know, it can take web servers down, or it can mean if you're not queuing things on your side, you know, if you're not queuing things and you're hitting out and you're getting rate limited, you could lose customer data. And if you are queuing them, it can back your queues up because you have all this retry logic. If a failure happens, it'll just fill your queues up. And so you have to respect rate limits. And, and it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of code. I mean, it's a solved problem, but it, it may, it's solved problem logically, but it can require a lot of code on your end to implement, properly implement rate limiting. Another thing that's uh, similar to that, which is is parallel requests. So you may end up with requests that are coming in on your API that are close enough to each other where if the resource doesn't exist, for example, then it needs to be created. And if you don't have your transaction set up properly in your code, then you can end up with duplicate resources created inside your app. And then suddenly things start to fall over because of basically what amounts to a race condition, which you never would have run into in normal interaction with your app because users aren't clicking on things with milliseconds between each request. Like the, if that happens to your app, if it's coming in through a, an external API, that can easily happen. So you do have to be careful and cautious about those types of things, which some frameworks are good about transactions and some are not so much. Another thing to keep think about when you're looking at integrating with an external API is what customers are using that and what visibility do you have for the other side of things? So if you, you are receiving commands or queries from another system, can you log into that system and see what has been initiated? Can you see what has been satisfied? Can you see the errors that were, were run into? Because a lot of those things, you may not necessarily have the information on your own server. So like there could be requests that's going out. You may see the request come in, but you don't necessarily know if it was responded to properly or you, the, it's sending back the wrong data. And if your code is incorrect or it's not responding properly, how would you know that? The only way to know that is to go to the other side and look from there. So 
being able to monitor things both internally and externally is important. And you don't always get that external viewpoint that you need. And you may not be able to track them down to particular customers either. So if you see an incoming request, not just why did it come in and where did it come from, like who was the vendor, but what customer of yours is that request associated with? If you can't see those things, it makes it difficult to troubleshoot and it makes it difficult for you to offer support for your own customers. Another thing to think about is is when you are building the integration, who can you contact for support? Like, is the documentation we've already covered a little bit, you know, is it good? Is it buggy? Is it correct or not? Do you have email access, phone access to a developer on their end? Because you're going to run into problems, right? And do you have access to a developer? Do you just email their general support? Do they have specific integration support? It's, I mean, I, we loved integrating with the three-person startup where two of the founders were developers. I mean, those went so smoothly. They could fix things so quickly, and they knew how everything worked. And you'd email them and be like, hey, there's a problem here, and this is the result we're getting. And they're like, fixed. You know, it was just, it was so good. And then the larger the teams get, and if you're sending an email, again, to Salesforce, you know, to their support to try to get integration, it's an absolute nightmare. And you hear back a week later, and they don't understand your question at all, and then they don't escalate you, and, and blah, blah, blah. So those are kind of the two extremes that I'd point out. But it's it's something to think about when building these. And the last one typically comes around when there are webhooks of like, how do you go about testing them? And this also applies to just you sending information over, but like, how do you go about making sure that the stuff that you're developing has like a test area on the other side? Like, are you working with production data? I mean, I would hope not, but there are cases where you're going to have to do that, which means that you have to create an account on their side and use that to do all of your testing. And effectively it's in production, but on your side, it's not. And that makes it hard because you have to keep things straight locally. It's like, oh, is this information here that we're working with in production or not on their side? And you may have like internal flags or toggles or you know fields that you use to keep track of that stuff. But it can get complicated, especially if you're trying to document that. Uh, and it's got to be documented in places where it's easily accessible by you to to understand what's going on on both sides and which environments it's going on. And then, you know, as you get it built, there's going to be an approval public publication process. And again, with smaller startups, there's typically not much of a process. You send an email, you say, hey, this is live. We're going to push this live, you know, in our UI next Tuesday. And they're like, cool, with, you know, Zapier or Salesforce or, or someone who's doing a lot of integrations or having a lot of people integrate with them, they're, they are going to have a process. They're going to have a checklist of requirements you know, you're going to want to uh, look at approval timelines because I know some apps take weeks and or months to get uh, approval publication timeline after it's approved. Is there a beta period? This is something Zapier I think does well. It feels like a pain when you're doing it or it feels like hoops to jump through, but they're doing it because they want to keep the quality of that, uh, of the service up, right? And if they don't have the beta period and, and, and all that where you have to get 10 users using it before, you know, because you're kind of, they want, you don't want to force you to work out the bugs basically. I think they do a, a good job of that. And then, you know, wh- how will you get support during beta? How will you provide support to your folks, you know, during beta? It's it's all things to uh, to think about to get it live because oftentimes, oftentimes writing the code is the least time intensive piece of this whole process. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the piece of this process that does take the most time is just making sure that there's that trust factor there on both sides that, hey, this is going to work and it's generally going to be good for everyone who's using it. But if it's not working or it's buggy or there's problems of any kind, whether it's transaction delays or things are just overly slow or they're using too much memory or there's uh, scaling issues on either side, all of those things can essentially erode the credibility of the integration. And at that point, 
one side or the other is going to want to back things off a little bit and it introduces this additional delay. So that delay factor just from becoming comfortable with it is important, but you also need to have ways to resolve that. And this kind of begs the question of how are discrepancies or, or disputes re- handled? And those disputes or discrepancies can be like, we expected this data, we got this data instead, or it could be something along the lines of this isn't working right and why is it taking so long? Or maybe it could be a design or an architectural issue. Oh, you said that you want to send us data X, Y, and Z, but it's also including this other thing. Why is it doing that? And I don't think that it should. And you have to have some way to resolve that. And sometimes you're talking directly to developers. Sometimes you're talking to an anonymous email box where you have no idea who's answering it or what they're ability to make changes or even knowledge of the entire system is. And each of those is going to be a a different approach, but they're things that you have to be aware of, especially when you're working with larger companies versus smaller ones. And then something we've alluded to several times during the episode is, you know, I I mentioned they're kind of my top three reasons for for building integrations. And one of them is the co-marketing opportunity, you know, the, the business development, so to speak, which is to be able to both promote who you're integrating with and for them to promote you in one way or another. And there are a lot of ways to do this. Uh, joint webinars is a pretty good way, especially if you're, you know, you think about if you're integrating with another startup, you both want the exposure to each other's audience. You know, if you're integrating with Stripe or Facebook or, you know, Google or whoever, you're not, you're not going to get that. But it's nice to think about, you know, that, that high touch opportunity to show how the integration works and the benefit it provides. So joint webinars is one. Certainly, I've found a lot of success with the joint email. You know, we email our list, you email yours co-promote blog posts also on on both you know announcement blogs for the you know for each company there are kind of the functionality update announcements whether that whether they handle that via email or in-app or whatever you you know you can offer an in-app announcement on both and even providing like a, a kind of customized landing page that says welcome pipe drive users welcome stripe users you know that they can link to from their the the other place you can get it is in their kind of their app directory their integrations directory there's typically one in the app and out on their public marketing website that's another place you want to be and from there like we found that building a custom landing page for some of them but not all was it worked really well and it increased conversions quite a bit there were a couple integrations where the click through from either in the app or from their kind of integrations directory on their marketing site to our landing page and then sign up for a trial was something like 30%. It was outrageously high. We asked for credit card up front so that, you know, typically the number is is very small. And it was like 20 to 30% and it was shocking. And we we did so much to tune that page and split test it, you know, but where the, the ones where we were getting 3 or 4%, you obviously don't care as much about those, but those co-marketing opportunities can be fascinating because if you get a big bump with, you know, a big email sent out to 30,000 of their marketing list or customer list or whatever, you can get a nice bump there. But then if you get in their app directory or you get in these other kind of longer living links, basically, you not only get the SEO juice from that, but you then get that flywheel of traffic. It's not huge. You know, maybe it's, again, maybe it's a hundred visitors a month. So it's not a huge amount, but if you're getting 10, 20, 30% of those to sign up for trial, that's 10, 20, 30 trials a month, every month that shows up. And then you multiply that by 10, 20, 30 integrations, you know, and you, and you start to see how you can build potentially build a flywheel out of this, assuming again that you can't just take this advice and apply it to your app without thinking, does this make sense? And is it going to provide the value? And do I have the leverage for these 
folks to to do all of this. But that is kind of the you know that integration marketing playbook that can help you know grow your business not only as a one time thing but as a sustainable sustainable approach. And with that, I think we're wrapped up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsoftherestofus.com. Theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups. Visit startupsoftherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.